The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A uh, warm well, welcome to Squawkbox this Tuesday morning with Karen Cho, and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. China's economy, though, losing steam in August as manufacturing growth slows and services sector contracts for the first time since the height of the pandemic. America's troop withdrawal from Afghanistan is complete, officially ending a 20-year war. More than 120,000 people have been evacuated, but many remain hoping to escape Taliban rule. A new chapter of America's engagement with Afghanistan has begun. It's one in which we will lead with our diplomacy. The military mission is over. A new diplomatic mission has begun. Porsche announces plans to open its first factory outside of Europe next year, choosing Malaysia as it's over its number one market, China. Meanwhile, Zoom shares plunge double digits in extended trade despite an earnings beat as the video call giant warns of slowing revenue growth. And the EU drops the US and five other countries from its safe travel list, urging member states to reinstate tighter restrictions on travellers as the Delta variant spreads. Welcome to the show. Right, China's factory activity grew at a slower pace in August and the service sector contracted. The official manufacturing PMI slipped to 50.1 from July's reading of 50.4, whilst the services sector, well, otherwise known as non-manufacturing here as well, slumped amid local coronavirus outbreaks as well as slowing exports. Let's get to Sam, who uh, joins us now and has uh, all the details uh, of these, uh, well, are they worrying numbers or were they expected, Sam? Uh, well, they were slightly expected, Steve, you could say. It was really that non-manufacturing, as you pointed out, that was uh, the big surprise contracting to 47.5. That is actually the first contraction we've seen uh, since February 2020, a sharp drop from that 53.3 we saw in July. The manufacturing also easing to 50.1. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, that is the fifth month we've seen of growth uh, slowing. Now, this is further evidence uh, that this Chinese economic recovery is losing some steam. Uh, but really, it is the first indication, the first sign now we've got of the economic cost of some of those very strict lockdowns and restrictions we saw because of a spike in cases that started at the end of July, which prompted Chinese authorities to lock down a number of cities, including car manufacturers. We also saw that Meishan terminal at the Ningbo port shut for two weeks. So August was always going to tell a better story in terms of the impacts of that. So some of it uh, was expected. But of course, the services uh, sector, we know, is far more vulnerable to those sorts of restrictions and lockdowns and the manufacturing side of things. And actually, if you look at the breakdown, uh, the catering, the travel, the accommodation and entertainment were all the hardest hit. Uh, Of course, we do know the manufacturers have already been facing these enormous headwinds. They've been facing these higher commodity prices, which have been putting pressure on already squeezed profit margins, but also these supply chain bottlenecks and also that chip crunch. But if you look at the breakdown in terms of the sub-indexes there as well, new orders as well as 
because new export orders uh, both contracted in the month of August, actually to the lowest in over a year, and that signals weak demand at home and abroad. Uh, We also saw that those Chinese factories did lay off workers again in the month of August. So there are a few worrying trends, you could say, here when it comes to consumption and also unemployment, because, of course, those things go hand in hand, because if you have a job, you're more uh, likely to spend money. Uh, The big question is, of course, whether this is a one-off now that we are seeing China relaxing some of these very strict measures. We did put this to a couple of experts today. One did say no, that this is confirmation that we are seeing an economic uh, slowdown in China, while others have said uh, that these tight credit conditions that we are seeing uh, when it comes to the Beijing authorities will continue uh, to weigh on things. And that is why uh, we are seeing some weakness when it comes to those mainland markets today. As you can see, uh, the Shenzhen Composite down over uh, 1.3% there. Uh, The big question now is, of course, when it comes to the policy response off the back of this, because a lot of this softening data has really fueled hopes that we could see further easing, uh, certainly by the Chinese central bank, to uh, complement its uh, recent dovish tilt, if you will, with that uh, recent triple R cut. We did see the biggest uh, weekly cash injection into the finance uh, system, the banking system, uh, last week since February. And that was really seen uh, as a sign to ease some of these investor concerns uh, around liquidity. But certainly there is some speculation uh, that we could see further easing uh, by the PBOC. And there has been some signals that we may see uh, more fiscal stimulus uh, as well to really propel uh, the economy to that uh, 6% growth target uh, that they are growing for. We do need to factor in, of course, this data that we did get today uh, does look at the uh, bigger and state-owned firms in China. Uh, We will be getting that Taishin manufacturing PMI out tomorrow uh, for a look at how the smaller and private factories did. We'll also be getting the services PMI out later in the week. And that will be key because, of course, we know that the services sector has been slower to recover than the manufacturing side of things. Uh, But that Taishin survey also looks uh, at uh, companies and businesses uh, like bars and restaurants, which have been uh, very hard hit uh, by these lockdowns that we saw throughout the month uh, of August. So uh, we still have uh, you know, a while to go uh, until we uh, get up to those uh, pre-pandemic levels when it does come to the consumption side of things. So that is certainly the worrying trend, guys. Back to you in London. Right, Sam, that's very far. Thank you very much indeed for that as well. Yeah, and just looking at what Citigroup had to say as well, uh, concerns about far, uh, cooling property sector on fast credit, uh, in, uh, regulatory tightening, concern about tight control over implicit local borrowings and the careful scrutiny of infrastructure projects may limit the rebound in infrastructure investment. So a few worries across the board, as Sam was highlighting. Now, Karen, good morning to you, by the way. Good morning. Uh, I don't know how I feel about this next story. Now, we tend to be uh, free market. Mm -hmm. We're libertarian. We we believe in capital markets, despite the fact that there are some very notable ills in those as well. But this next story, which I had no idea about until you and the producers were talking about it this morning, I don't know how I feel about it as a parent. Right, yes. Um, A little citizen. Well, yeah, I've got one who's a lot older, who's a man now. I've got Mm. ones who are entering teenage years and and a a young one. And I just don't know how I feel about this next one. You've got an even younger one as well. It contextualises around the the point of thing for many of us who have iPads and young children on some of these devices. It's not just... Uh, what you see with those electronic devices, it goes to a next step. Well, it's indeed. not just watching the likes of YouTube, indeed. Netflix, Disney and, and, and the like. And it makes us look at ourselves as parents and saying, what are we doing wrong at times? The fact right. that our children are in front of screens rather than out climbing right. trees, getting muddy and scuffing knees. This is the story. I think we all need to think about this. If you're a parent out there, have a think about this. Well, if you've got old kids, then it's, it's done. China 
plans to limit the amount of time kids will be allowed to play online video games, wait for it, to up to three hours per week. Now, the new ban is seen as a, a way to safeguard a way to safeguard children's well-being, but it's expected to weigh on online gaming giants such as Tencent and NetEase. And they head on to uh, CNBC.com for the full story. But I, I have to say, I look in the mirror when I see a story like that and say, should my child be playing these games at all? Well, I remember back in the day, I had limits on the amount of television I could watch during the week. You know, I had to do my homework first, and by the time I got through that, there was really no time to watch television limits anyway. Limits 15 hours of scoreboard time. <laughs> right. But then on weekends, there were still limits as well. And, you yeah. know, I did grow up in a half-Chinese family, so there was that uh, implication where there should be some curbs on the type of consumption that you, you are having. You should be focused on learning, you should be focused on some sort of achievement. And I think that's the cultural element that is coming through now from the Chinese government. Yeah. Perhaps they feel as though some parents have lost their touch in terms of being strict with discipline with families. And you know, it feels uh, from a Western context, very nanny state, doesn't it, to have a government saying your children can only watch this amount of TV. Well, very nanny state, especially <laughs> when you add it to the <laughs> fact that the gaming. Chinese government is finally trying to get people to have bigger families of course, you know, from the one child to the two child to, to more child policies now. But a lot of Chinese families and, and Chinese mothers, I believe, are turning around saying, well, no, uh, actually what I want to do is I want to give, I want to be a working mum as well. I want to go out there and work as well. I don't want to be tied to home having lots of children. Have you? And I also want my children to have the best education possible. But then the Chinese government's come back uh, and banned this or, or, or taken away the profit for additional education services as well. Uh, and people say, but I want my child to have that opportunity as well as the public system. So I say, there are a whole host of areas where I wonder if there's a conflict happening. Again, I, I, we need to watch Sino Watchers for this. And don't forget, this is limited to those uh, who are minors, so under the age of 18, effectively. But it does send some messaging about the ill effects of online gaming to the rest of the population. And perhaps it will make people sit back and think, well, if the limits are three hours on uh, weekends for younger populations, should we be thinking about our own personal activities here when it comes to online? If you go on to public transport, which I know that you get a chauffeur-driven car in... Uh, or something like that. But, <laughs> but if you were to go onto public transport, and, and you, you've all done it out there, if you're on the metro, the subway, the tube, whatever, uh, or the bus, uh, 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 and you look at what everyone's doing, are they all reading newspapers? Are they all reading books? I would suggest to you that about 80% of people are like this. They or, are. or they're like this. On the newest gadgets that On you On the gadgets, or well. they're watching Netflix, or streaming <laughs> Peacock, or whatever it may well be. And so, mm. so everyone's glued to their screens the whole time. They're not taking in anything that's going on around them. Anyway, fascinating story. It's, it's definitely worth having a little think about how you stand on this one as well, especially if you're a parent of children below the age of 18. I have to say, it makes you have a little think. Anyway, look, I'm supposed to be doing Asian markets. That was all just our living. Um, so uh, <laughs> Asian markets. So we have got the Hang Seng and the Shanghai Composite down uh, about 7 tenths to 1% in the mean, uh, uh, mostly on the back of those PMI stories. But you'll notice the ASX 200 is still up 6 tenths. The Nikkei is up 1.1% as well. So some solid moves there to the upside. I'll just tell you in the US markets last night, record levels again on the S&P and on the NASDAQ as well. Uh, the Dow down 0.2 of 1%. Karen's going to talk you through some month-to-date stuff in a minute. I'll just tell you, though, we had pending home sales yesterday falling 1.8%. And again, is this about the fact that people don't want to buy homes? Or is it about the availability? Is it about the construction? Is it about the workers? Or is it about price as well? I think it's a little bit 
of all of those factors. A lot of data, as we've already said, uh, this week. Yeah, a good point to step back and take a look at the month that was August and what we saw in markets. Uh, it's been a long month. I think, think many of us have been enjoying a little bit of summer where we could find it. But the Dow, it was all about the Dow early in August where we saw a little bit of a flip towards the defensives, investors riding off the back of those bumper earnings numbers that crossed. And we saw fresh records early on for the Dow. But uh, over the course of the month, yeah. some of that sentiment fading, coming off some of the record levels, but still high for the month, 1.3% pop over the course of August. But by the end of the month, it was really about the S&P and the Nasdaq as those technology names came back to the fore. And you could see fresh records on the likes of the S&P. In fact, it's seventh positive month in a row. And so that it was a very strong indication, as you can see, 3% to the upside. Uh, Apple won the big catalyst uh, moving in session yesterday, but still a very strong journey for a lot of those big technology names. And that fresh record closed the 65th of this year. So it has been upward path for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq tech stocks, a huge contributor. And you can see just how strong the bounce was back end of this month, which uh, has led to a rally of 4% versus that just over 1% on the Dow. Very strong movement from the big fang names as we saw the month unfold. But some of this down to the narrative, don't forget, around the Fed. And what we saw effectively was very dovish messaging at the end of the month. Some of this around Jackson Hole, which became the big ticket event for a lot of investors. And we saw this playing out on the yield. Just recall where we were trading at the start of the month, below 1.2% on this 10-year yield. We escalated well past the 1.30 level at some points and then back just below that level currently, 1.27%. So it has been a roller coaster of events around the Fed, a taper, taper talk, and what we hear, of course, on the corporate profit side. And uh, the main big feature still around COVID and how the Delta variant is playing out. So let's get to Bruno Verstrata, who is managing partner, Lakeville Partners. Bruno, it was somewhat of a, a choppy old month of August, particularly in some asset classes where we went to the, the highs and the lows in the month, yet thin trading always impacts August. So what lies ahead for September? What are you expecting? Good morning. Well, I believe uh, September is going to be challenging. Uh, we all have uh, 2018, the last quarter in mind with peak earnings. If I look at the, um, the earnings that came out in this season, clearly they're, they're really stunning, mainly because of the normalization trade. Um, people were starting to spend first on goods then on services and we see that now reflected in the inflation numbers as well um, but i think it, it's all about the four t's i think it's about the um, the tapering clearly on top of the agenda uh, the fed clearly got wiser and doesn't want to make it into a tantrum and they're going to be very very cautious in communicating that and massaging the market uh, about the tapering coming and then also focus on the interest rate increase so i think that they won't uh, use to upset the market, uh, but investors um, are going to wonder what's next. And I think uh, positioning into the defensive, seeing a bit of a slowdown in the economy, which is more than normal, uh, might be a good, a good way to go. And we already saw a bit of a start on that in, uh, in August, uh, shifting from cyclical um, to, to the more defensive stocks um, going forward. We did, Bruno, and I just want to pick up on the, those elements because the early buying in August meant defensive names that were contained on the Dow, which led to the outperformance by the Dow. The second part of the month, it flipped back to those uh, new types of defences, technology names, where investors know they can count on the steady uh, earnings coming through to those big tech players. So what happens from here if there are taper concerns, but no real concerns around rates going up? Does that mean technology still can find leadership in this market, propelling the major indices to fresh records? 
Well, the question is how are they going to sustain the growth path that they've uh, been on in the last uh, year? I think what uh, investors might start to realize is that even if there is a new flu wave with the Delta variant, uh, that the, the, the bumper growth that they have seen because of that, homeschooling, home office, um, entertainment online, I think everyone seems to have already their home office equipped. So the question is how are they going to continue on this path of growth because that is clearly priced into the into the companies already now uh, and and what's going to cause them to to continue to go up so i think there will be a bit of cautiousness coming into it looking at the valuations and one sign of that is that switzerland for example i think one of the the biggest defensive markets out there is currently trading at a discount versus its long-term average showing that defensive has been underpriced for a while now waiting for a bit of an economic slowdown and i think that that might also be the tricky part of the fed when are they going to taper in order not uh, to cause any any policy mistake bruno good morning to you um i don't know if the fed is going to scare anyone with its tapering now because you think about it we're talking about 120 billion dollars uh, a month. If they taper between five and ten billion dollars per month as well, it's still going to take the best part of a year uh, for us to get rid of the, the uh, actual quantitative easing as well. It's so slow. I feels like being a boiled frog, so to speak, and I don't mean to offend any frogs out there. But the fact of the matter is, it's like it's going to happen so slowly as well. I think the market's just going to absorb it, isn't it? Well, that's clearly what the Fed wants. Uh, they clearly do not want to shock the market yet again because they know how vulnerable it is already now um, and, and that they, they don't want to, to scare the market. So whatever they're going to say, it's going to be pre-announcing the talk, talking the talk, and then eventually they will go to slowing down the additional purchases, which is not really you know, stopping the stimulus. Uh, only when quantitative tightening and then eventually uh, interest rate increases come. Uh, that's way ahead and on the horizon and, uh, and the market knows it. The only variable that might determine the timing on that is the, the inflation. If that continues to go above uh, what they claim is the long-term average and this starts to become non-transitional as they have claimed, I think they will need to react in order not to lose their, um, their credibility both in Europe and in uh, in US. Yeah, you're talking about transition there and, and inflationary facts as well. You've also uh, pointed out in your notes, uh, you've got a T for Taiwan, which is a symbolization of computer chip shortages causing supply chain disruptions as well. It is interesting, isn't it? We've been talking about this all year, and now the auto companies are still talking about this lasting to the end of the year and potentially beyond as well. Just to explain what you what you think here. Well, I think the supply chain disruptions are clearly something that's uh, quite frustrating for companies which are seeing uh, pent-up demand coming in after everyone was uh, released from their lockdowns and now suddenly they cannot even deliver because of some small glitches along the chain showing how important globalization is and, and how vulnerable companies are with the, the last-minute deliveries that, they, that they've seen from all over the world. Um, transportation costs have gone up. So to shift that back home uh, is clearly taking a lot of time. Um, and that is something that everyone is doing right now. But you cannot make a chip plant uh, overnight. It takes uh, two years. And I think that's a vulnerability to the system, which is coming at the cost, not just of turnover and, uh, and revenue, uh, but also uh, costs um, an increase in the prices. 
So it, it really has very deep repercussions which should not be underestimated. This supply chain issue needs to be looked at and needs to be restored for every single company out there. Bruno, we've all been closely watching the events playing out in Afghanistan. Now the handover to the Taliban. What impact, what fallout do you expect for the markets in terms of the geopolitical event around Afghanistan? Well, it, it's sad to say, but the economic impact of Afghanistan is relatively benign. Uh, the only impact that I see is a potential uh, impact on the power internally of, uh, of President Biden. I think uh, that could influence his economic program uh, and can be used from uh, the other, um, from the Republicans uh, going into the mid-year uh, the mid elections. It's still a bit uh, out there, uh, but it's clearly the, the closing of an era and also a symbolization of globalization and watching the world uh, coming to an end um, in, in, in the framework of the economy. I think it's, it's well aligned with that. Bruno, we're going to leave it there. Nice to see you, my friend. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you're well. Uh, right, Bruno Vachatu is managing partner at Lakefield Partners. Uh, moving on, uh, Porsche unveils plans to open its uh, first factory outside of Europe, uh, but it's probably not where you think it's going to be. It's not China. Uh, it's targeting some of the world's fastest growing markets uh, and economies. More on that after the break. And it's never been a better time to subscribe to the Squawkbox podcast as markets continue to reach record levels following another month in the green. Check it out wherever you get your podcast from. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. Stellantis says it will continue to put the brakes on several of its European production facilities amid the ongoing semiconductor shortage. Its French factories in Rennes and Sochaux, uh, along with its German plant in Eisenach, all halted production last week and will remain suspended for part of the week. Porsche, meanwhile, has unveiled plans for a new or new A production, it says here, for a new production uh, facility in Malaysia, in what would be the German car maker's first factory outside of Europe. Porsche says the move will help it serve high demand in the country and across Asia Pacific, where tariffs and taxes on imported vehicles remain high. The luxury automaker will also open an R&D hub in Shanghai, but has previously ruled out plans to open a production facility in China. I mean, uh, long time coming, but the growth of uh, the various Porsche brands are going great guns at the moment. I look, took a look back at the most recent figures as well, uh, and very, very strong return on sales. And it's that figure which a lot of its peers have absolutely failed. I say peers, a lot of people in the broader auto industry rather than at the high end uh, have failed to get. There's 16.9% return on sales, so very mm. respectable figures there. Um, the most recent figures were a 33% increase uh, in revenue. Operating result was up 127%. I know it was flattered year on year, but these are big numbers as well, and they're looking to grow Asia more. Right. What we've got going on in the industry is a huge amount of change, and some of it's about still retaining existing customers, tapping new ones, and of course transitioning towards electric vehicles. 
models. And when it comes to what Porsche is up to around creating this small assembly line, keep in mind it is only small, they are still trying to tap into the, the wealthy Asian customer. And if you think about it from uh, purchasing around that region, it is so expensive to get a German vehicle on the road. To, to buy even a basic model is so expensive with taxes and tariffs. And one of the moves around Porsche has been to lower the cost for some of those uh, potential customers across Asia by having a facility closer to home that gets around some of those taxes and tariffs. So arguably in this phase, it is about attracting those uh, growing customers, the growing customer base in Asia still while they have this transition going on in the background. And that taxation story is a big spot, a huge increase in import taxes and uh, and uh, uh, and prices there. But what I thought was very interesting is, is that actually the customer base is moving. I mean, Porsche is one of the symbols of petrol heads globally, isn't it? They love the engines and they know all kinds of stuff about 993s and 60s, which I'll never know. Uh, but in Europe, more than 40% of customers are already choosing electric versions as well, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I I, one of my best, best friends, he's a petrol head, um, loves his cars, owns, dare I say it, way too many. Uh, and his latest car is an electric Porsche. Yeah, there was a lot of weight for many, many decades around made in Germany. The quality that came, the assurance with that uh, manufacturing badge and when it's changed now and as we head into the next phase, what comes next? Does made in Germany have any weight when it comes to electric vehicles? That'll be an interesting test, won't it? It's very interesting. I mean, lots of other manufacturers have gone down that route. I remember there was an outcry uh, when, first of all, Volvo uh, opened up Belgium facilities. And then when Volvo had facilities elsewhere around the world as well, and there's still people out there who believe there is a difference in quality and where they are made as well. Whether it is or not is, is above my pay grade. But um, fascinating to see Porsche do, making this move as well. Of course, Porsche still remains very much tied to the broader Volkswagen group as well. I'd be interested to see what their next move is with their luxury brands. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.